Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. It is good to be with you. Uh, I know more will be said later, uh, but I will tell you this. I am glad to have Aaron, my wife, with me, along with our four children, and I'm glad to have my mother with me as well uh, as we enjoy this day of fellowship and we enjoy this day of worship with you. Uh, in case you're wondering, do, do, did I used to attend here? The answer is no. However, someone has already come up to me and say, you look exactly like Wade. My brother and his wife and their three boys used to attend here, Wade and Mary Wells, uh, along with their three children. And so if you uh, remember Wade and Mary and uh, have good good stories, I'd love to hear them. Right? No, I know they've already, I already found one brother who had Wade in school at Bevel State. And I said, how, how was he as a teacher? And we kind of just grinned about that, right? High expectations. It's good to be together today. I'm excited to begin this meeting with you. And I look forward to our time together this week. Before we begin though, let's go to our Father in prayer. And then we're going to jump right into this subject. And you're going to come to find out the Learn to Discern series is one of those series where we address Hot-button cultural issues. Uh, you'll come to find out, I don't run from things. Uh, I don't run from the tough subjects. But that's because I believe God's Word was written even for the tough subjects. And this week, the goal is not to come to a conclusion politically on these things. The goal is to become a familiar with God's conclusions on matters that pertain to current culture. Before we begin, though, let's go to our Father in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, You are wonderful and You are awesome and You are mighty. Lord, we're grateful to be able to be even in Your presence as we bow our heads as a reflection of, of humility that we want to have before You. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for hearing from us. And Lord, we come to You this morning in the name of Your Son, Jesus, because He said we could... Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that we know that no matter how how rough it seems to get in our current society, that we know that you are still there and that you are still ever present. And Lord, for those of us who put our trust and confidence in you, that does bring us comfort. We understand that you've never promised that everything in this life will be easy. But Lord, we do know that you are bigger than this culture. And for that, we're grateful. Lord, our prayer as we embark on this journey is simply that we will line up behind your conclusions. And that we, maybe if we struggle with such, that if repentance needs to be had and revisiting our conclusions, Lord, we pray that we will change and that we do not expect for you to change. Thank you for this opportunity to be with this good congregation today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
This morning, as we begin, I want you to think about the concept of learning to discern. The idea of discernment throughout the scriptures is very interesting when you start talking about what it means to have to make a choice between good and evil. You know, in the New Testament, the writer will tell us there as he he's talking about individuals who have gone to the gym, basically. You know, the idea of spiritual discipline is the concept of you choosing to exercise what you know from the scriptures. That's what spiritual discipline is. But spiritual discipline does not occur just because an individual has shown up. It would be the same concept of spiritual discipline and discernment doesn't come about much in the same way that if an individual wants to get into shape and they go to the gym and they buy a membership and then the lady or the man behind the counter says, would you like for us to show you around? And they say, sure, you can show me around. So they show you the, the locker room. They show you the uh, free weights. They show you the machine weights. And then they say, would you like to work out? And the person replies, no, I didn't come here to work out. I only came here to get the membership and the grand tour. And then the idea is they don't know why they don't get muscular. They don't know why they don't get in shape. And the idea behind that is this. Simply buying the membership and getting the tour does not make someone get into shape. In the same sense, spiritual discipline and discernment is not developed because someone shows up at a building and they sit in a pew. Discernment, spiritual discipline concepts happen when the exercise of what you know to be spiritually true occurs in your life. That is this, when an individual has shaped their mindset and their conscience to understand the difference between good and evil. When you think about discernment, I don't know what comes to your mind. My mind immediately goes back to the book of Genesis And I think about uh, a man by the name of Joseph who was unfairly treated not only by his brothers and but by individuals who would falsely accuse him. But you see, what's interesting about the account of Joseph is that in all that was going on throughout the book of Genesis in that account, God was still with him. You see, God was moving Joseph through his difficulties to get him somewhere so that his people would be able to come into the land of Goshen so that they would be sustained. You see, God had a plan all along and Joseph just simply had to hold on. That was the idea. But what's beautiful is in all of the things that occurred to Joseph, the Bible will reiterate over and over again that God was with him. God was with him and God was with him. And so when we look at Genesis chapter 41, it should not surprise us then that God is with with Joseph when it comes to the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. You see, Pharaoh had a dream and it was very unsettling about the famine years that would come after the the plentiful years and the need to have an individual make sure they, they put away. But see, Pharaoh didn't know all of that. But Joseph is the one that was able to bring what God had revealed to him before Pharaoh... And Joseph is the one that said that Pharaoh needed to set someone discerning over the collection of the crops. You see, because if they had not, if they had not done what they did in the seven years of plenty, then they would not have had the result that they had in the seven years of famine. What's interesting about this text though, when I look at Genesis chapter 41, beginning with verse 38, I see this discussion happening between Joseph and Pharaoh. And the Bible reads this way. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this 
and whom is a divine spirit. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne, I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have yet, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And what's beautiful is Joseph then would go on to accomplish what God would have him to accomplish. What I want you to know today, though, about this idea of discerning. First of all, discerning people don't just happen all the time. Discerning individuals happen because they actually have exercised the difference between good and evil. And in our current culture, I'll be real with you, there is a blurred line, it seems, in our in our current state of being of what is good and what is evil. We live in a culture today that we we call what is evil good, and at least we we go along with these things. And then we'll say that what is good, those are the bad guys, those are the bad ladies, those views are not in our culture in the mainstream because they don't go along with society. You see, the concept of discernment, it literally is the idea of the difference between good and evil. That's why this morning as we begin and we look at a subject that is definitely a hot-button topic, immigration, the goal is not to side with Republicans or Democrats or Independents. As a matter of fact, God never called me to preach politics. And so you're not going to get politics today. And where I personally stand on the issue politically is is of no account on this particular day. But what is account is this. What does God say? How are we to understand this as it is shaped by God? And so when you think about the idea of of immigration, I, I want you and I to, to really understand basically the discussion that is at hand, especially as it pertains to what's going on today with the amount of border security that is down south, the number of, of individuals who are coming across into our country that have been termed illegal, and what's happening to them, what are we trying to do with Mexico, what's going on with cities that will welcome individuals who are illegal in the immigration category, uh, what's going on in this whole concept, and where are we supposed to be? You see, because quite honestly, the discussion is this. Look, either we, we build walls and we separate America from the rest of the world, and that we're okay with immigration, but we want it to be legal immigration. That's one view. The other view is this, that we should just have open borders and we should grant amnesty to all those who want to be here. Because after all, wasn't there a particular time in America that we were a nation of immigrants? And would have any of us wanted to have the treatment that is being had today? You see, that's really how the discussion goes. But when you and I think about it from the standpoint of biblically speaking, the question is, how does the Bible address it? And so today... What my goal is, is to show you an Old Testament concept and a New Testament concept. And at the end of it then is to show you uh, reflections upon the scripture that you and I can walk away with that hopefully will inform your conclusions. And my goal is for it to shape your conclusions because as Jesus followers, all of our views, even politically, ought to be shaped from the scriptures. And so when we get into this, that's why I say the goal's not politics. The goal is to line up behind the teachings of the Bible, even in difficult subjects. 
And so what I want you to do is, if you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn to Genesis chapter 11 with me this morning. Genesis chapter 11, we're introduced, I guess you could say, not to the first form of immigration, but definitely to a familiar form of immigration as we deal with a man by the name of Abram. Now, Abram was an individual whose name would later be changed to Abraham. However, at this stage in the game, that's not what his name is. And of course, you all understand that Abram comes from a heritage where obviously there was a family. And in that family, there had to have been some element of wealth and there had to have been some element of population where there would have been security because you've got to understand in the the Old Testament concept of the family, there was no uh, idea of a local police force that you could call. Their idea was if you settled in a location, other individuals may settle with you, uh, but there were lands that people could say they were of. That would be, I guess, our concept of saying, where are you from? Well, they would say where they were from. And in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 31, the Bible reads this way. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. Now, the reason I begin here is because you see movement of people. You see movement of people out of one land and into another land. Now, I guess the question could be raised of what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, when I reflect back on what Tara did and where he moved his family, were, were they talking about from one country to another? Were the boundaries so clearly drawn? Well, I would offer this to you. Obviously, there were uh, concepts such as Ur, and there were concepts such as Haran. Uh, now, the, the definition of those as nations, we're not told specifically yet at this point in time. But I would offer this to you as well. When you study from the, the Bible, you've got to understand the perspective that the Bible is written from. In other words, Moses, being the inspired author of the Torah or the Pentateuch, he is not writing as a TV reporter in real time. Because Moses isn't born yet in the book of Genesis. He's not born until the book of Exodus comes along. That's when we see the Moses account. And so Moses is reflecting back on this particular account by inspiration. And at times in the scripture... There will be a reflection back and there will be names that are used that may not have been as clearly defined in the actual time. But that's because the audience of the Torah would have been the children of Israel. And if you would have mentioned those names, then they would have known what you were talking about, right? I guess it would be the equivalent of today. Sometimes towns and cities' names might change over time. Or maybe street names will change over time. Or maybe gas station names will change over time. And if I'm talking to somebody in a modern sense, it would not do any good for me to refer to that in its old form if the modern audience would not have known its old form. I, in this time, might refer to that in its modern form just so the audience would say, oh, okay, I know where you're talking about. I know the area you're talking about. What we do know is this, though. There was immigration that happened with Abram. And when you look over at Genesis chapter 12, that immigration was to continue beyond Haran as God wanted him to migrate. 
You look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's interesting is there were obviously other people. Now you think about that and go, well, what difference does that make? That means this, that God's word would not have revealed that he would bless those that bless Abram and that he would curse those who curse Abram. Because everywhere Abram went, there is no indication that he would have been necessarily received with open arms. That's why that promise is made in Genesis chapter 12. And if you follow the Abraham uh, account, you'll know that on at least two separate occasions, he crossed paths with individuals that he at least feared for his life because he knew that these individuals were strong countries or strong rulers. They at least had a strong ruler. And the idea was that's when there was a lie about Sarah, his wife, being his sister-in-law. And he did so because he feared for his own life. And so the idea is not everybody was going to receive him well in his migration across this land. If I look over at Exodus chapter 33, that's when I begin to see maybe some words that bring definition to this discussion. In Exodus chapter 33, there's a particular word that is used in the original language in verse 13 that does denote this concept of a defined group of people, both politically and in ethical terms. And beyond that is that political group, that ethnic group, that they had a territory concept. Now, all of that is summarized in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 13, where the Bible says, Now, therefore, I pray you... If I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Now, obviously, that's Moses interceding on behalf of the children of Israel before God. But that word nation is that Hebrew word, and there's no reason for me to try to uh, pronounce it. So I'll simply spell it. It is G-O-Y. And the New American Standard, I'm not sure what the New King James or maybe the King James or another translation translates it as. But the New American Standard would choose to translate that word as a nation. That's why probably when Exodus comes about, we will refer to the children of God at times as the Israelites, but then at other times we will refer to them as the nation of Israel. That meant that they were a defined people. Now, in order to be that nation, you had to have similar uh, ethnicity. There was this idea that your beliefs were the same. And of course, for the nation of Israel, it was the concept of there's one God. And we're going to follow God. His, he, God sets the laws of the land. God sets the rules. Thus, all that has been revealed in the book of Exodus, we are going to follow as our nation's laws if you were of the nation of Israel. At that time, there was no uh, making up rules. God was the king. He was the one who made up the rules. Therefore, they were defined by such. That's why it should not surprise us then that as the nation of Israel continues to move towards the promised land, that we see this continual shaping that is going on. And it's a nation that is being shaped by God and His conclusions. 
The nation of Israel was simply supposed to line up behind the conclusions of the one who was in charge. Now, when I look back at Exodus chapter 19, I see a similar concept that is brought forth in the idea of the concept of the nations. Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, and of course you know the Ten Commandments will come in Exodus chapter 20. But in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, the Bible reads this way as Moses is going up to the mountain. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings... And brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. They were a holy nation. They were a select people. And I would offer this to you, that as a holy nation... And as a select people, God was going to be the one that dictated how they were to respond when immigration came on the scene. You say, immigration in the Old Testament? Yeah, immigration is in the Old Testament. I would propose this to you, that the children of God began as immigrants. And as immigrants, they relied on the goodness of the people that they came through their land. And and they ultimately relied on the fact that God was going to take care of them as they came through the land of other people. Turn, if you will, over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'd like for you to consider something this morning regarding the way that that aliens and strangers are addressed in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Bible says this, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verses 17 through 19. And of course, you'll remember the book of Deuteronomy as a book of a retelling of the law. There's no doubt about that. But it's a book that basically is three three sermons. You see, Moses wasn't going into the promised land because he struck the rock out of frustration instead of speaking to the rock. But this book that is the send-off, I guess you could say, because at the end of the book of Deuteronomy is where the death of Moses is recorded. This was a book of three sermons looking back at where they come from, looking up at why they have the sustenance that they do, and looking ahead at where they're going into the promised land. It's within this book, though, we find a continuation of how individuals who are not of their nation are to be treated. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and following, the Bible says this, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, And the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. In other words, that wasn't your homeland. When the children of God moved into Goshen, do you understand that that was not where they were from? They were not from Egypt, but going to the land of Egypt, they were able to have food and have sustenance because of what God was doing through Joseph. But all of that was to take care of his people. But what the Bible here, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says is this. God loves the alien and he gives food and clothing. So you do the same. The idea of the word alien there is the Hebrew word G-E-R. It literally means aliens, sojourners, and strangers. 
Ultimately, it means this. You are living amongst people that you are not blood related to. You do not have their ethnic background. You do not have their political background. You don't have the civil rights that come with being blood related. Because you're not going to have the backing of the family. The idea literally is you are amongst a group of people as aliens. You are not from them. And the Bible says this, God responds a certain way. You need to respond a certain way as well. I want you to look in your Bibles, if you will, Leviticus chapter 19. Because what you're going to find is a a more complete explanation of this, I guess, in the idea of how does God want the nation of Israel to respond to those who are aliens, those who are sojourners, those who are not of blood relation to their ethnic group. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 34. Of course, this is a book and dealing with uh, holiness is what the book of Leviticus is about. It's what does God want in sacrifice? What, what kinds of sacrifice? How are they going to sacrifice? How are the priests supposed to dress? Why were they supposed to dress that way? But in Leviticus chapters 18, 19, and 20, it's interesting because you have a segment of that that's not about sacrifice and it's not about priestly attire and worship, but it's about how do you live amongst people. 18, 19, and 20 is about living amongst people. That's where he will call them to be holy. And the answer for them being holy is because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Just as a side note, because I don't want you to take my word for it. Look back at chapter 18 real quick. I want you to see this. And if you want to do a really neat study on why you behave and come to conclusions the way that you do, it has everything to do with who is your God. That's why you come to conclusions the way that you do. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 2, the Bible says this, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Verse 4, it ends, I am the Lord your God. Verse 5 ends this way, I am the Lord. Verse 6 ends this way, I am the Lord. Now I'm not going to read them all, but I do want you to be overwhelmed with the number of times that this occurs. Chapter 18 verse 21 Chapter 18, verse 30. Chapter 19, verse 2. Chapter 19, verse 3. Chapter 19, verse 4. Chapter 19, 10. 19, 12. 19, 14. 19, 16. 19, 18. 19, 25. 19, 28. 19, 30. 19, 31. That sounds like I'm labeled an off years, right? All of that, though, what I want you to understand is over and over and over again, the reasons that God wants his people to behave and act in the ways that he wants them to behave is because he is their God. That's the whole basis of why, if your children or your grandchildren ever ask the why, have you ever told them, because I said so? I'm sure you never did, right? That was never your experience. When you told them because I said so, what were you appealing to? You were appealing to the fact that you are bigger than them in an authoritative position and that you don't have to explain yourself to your child. Now, as your children age and as they get older, then the idea may not be because I said so. It may be you're trying to help them reason to come to conclusions that are accurate. But the whole because I said so thing has everything to do with you appealing to your authority. Because your dad, because your mom, because your grandma, your grandpa. The reality is this, when God tells them how to act, 
He doesn't have to go any further than this. Because I, the Lord, am the God. That's his reasoning. And so in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 34, when it comes to this issue of strangers and aliens, the Bible reads this way. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So how were they supposed to respond to aliens? How were they supposed to respond to strangers? And the answer is, they were supposed to love them. And not just love them from afar, they were to love them up close in a sense of, like you would love yourself. Now, here's the reality though. In the Old Testament, there is some aspect of a wall. You say, Joe, you said we're going to deal with... Yeah, we're dealing with real issues. I want you to think back to the way that nations established their sovereignty in the Old Testament. I want you to think back to the military might. And I want you to think back to territorial boundaries. And I want you to think back to a time period where uh, the children of God were taken captive by the Assyrians. And they were taken captive by the Babylonians. And then I want you to imagine what it would be like coming out of captivity... As you go back to a desolated land that used to be thriving and that used to be respected and used to have a wall. You see, I would propose this to you. Biblically speaking in the Old Testament, I can show you that God is not opposed to walls. Nehemiah is where I would turn. Nehemiah is an Old Testament book about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. You would remember Ezra's about reestablishment, rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah's about rebuilding the wall. And the question is, why? Why would God want a wall? Why would a wall even be necessary? And you and I remember from our times of growing up about what a wall was for. Walls, especially where they had the gates, men would sit in those gates and they would function as meeting places where decisions would be made, where sales would be made, agreements potentially with who would marry whom in a time and a culture of arranged marriages. Those walls accomplished a lot. But when I look back at the purpose of the wall as Nehemiah is is downhearted because of the destruction and the, the charge to go back and to rebuild the wall, then I look at the Bible and I say, why? Why would God want a wall around Jerusalem? I mean, why not just leave it open? Why not just leave it open? That way, whoever wanted to come in could come in. Whoever wanted to go out could go out. Do we really need any checks and balances? Why the wall? In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, I read this. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I wonder why that wall represented no longer being a reproach. Of course, if you put yourself in that time period, here you are, you've just been released from captivity. You come back and the idea is your history is wrapped up in that city of Jerusalem. But it's not only wrapped up in the city of Jerusalem, your history, but also the the events that occurred where your people went into captivity. 
People knew you were coming back, but they didn't take the nation of Israel serious because they were scattered. Some would even look at the book of 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and they'll look at that from the standpoint of, why is that book even written? That is a post-exilic book. And the idea is, why did they need to remember their history? Why did they need to remember what God had done through Solomon with the temple? Why did they need to remember that there was this exile, this remnant that would be coming back to Jerusalem? Why all of that? And the idea was this, God promised that there would be a remnant return to Jerusalem. I believe wholeheartedly that God was behind the rebuilding of the temple and that God is behind the rebuilding of the wall. But in all of that it was because we are a reproach. People are looking at us and we're not taken serious. People are looking at us and the idea is you're not an established nation. That's really what's going on. They're not accepting you as anything other than a vagabond of of individuals coming out of exile who were slaves for a time and they're not taking you serious. I just find it quite interesting that in order to get rid of the reproach, in the Old Testament, the wall represented something. You look at other passages, 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 16, Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 18, Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 20, and you'll come to find out that the wall was about safety as well. You'll also come to find out, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 20, that it was about security. So the wall represented getting rid of reproach. The wall represented the the events that would occur for the nation in decision-making and the people individually. The wall represented safety. The wall represented security. My question is this. Could they not have had all of that without a wall? Why did they need to have the wall? Why would God even want the wall if the wall was bad? Now, here's the reality. When I look at the Old Testament, what I see is this. The nation could have a wall around Jerusalem. But individually, if a native, or excuse me, if an alien or a stranger were to come up and interact with me, I responded very favorably to them. If they needed food, I gave them food. If they needed clothing, I gave them clothing. Because individually, I was to respond to them the way that God responds to people. That's the teaching from the Old Testament. He wasn't against security, and he wasn't against borders. But he was for God's people responding to those who were aliens the way that God would respond to those who were aliens. The question then is, if we move to the New Testament, do I see a different response? Or do I see the same response? Look, if you will, at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, I see the idea of a very familiar account. And I'm not going to go over this entire account for the sake of time. But in Luke chapter 10, what I begin to understand is this, that there was a, a parable of a good Samaritan that would occur But a question that would prompt the parable of the Good Samaritan was simply brought forth from verses 25 through 29 when Jesus was speaking there to the lawyers, to the political individuals of the day. And he would tell him to do what is said in the law. Verse 27, the idea is what is the greatest commandment? Verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the question from verse 29 is this, and who is my neighbor? That's the whole reason that the parable of the Good Samaritan is brought forth. And ultimately, at the end, the idea is this, who is my neighbor is the one who is in need. 
That's who my neighbor is. Not the individual who lives right beside me. The one is my neighbor is the one who is in need. And so therefore, I have a response to the one who is in need. That's the first foundational concept. Then when I look over at Matthew chapter 25, I see a concept regarding the judgment that will happen. And this is the parting of the right and of the left. And and how did we know we were serving God? That's this context. And within this particular context, Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 36, the Bible reads this way. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. That word stranger means you're from another place. I was not of you. That's what that word stranger means. And what the Bible is particularly saying there ultimately is this. When you took care of those who were the least amongst these and you served the least, you were serving me. But the language that is used is not denoting this is your family member who is sick. This is your family member who needs food. This is your family member who needs clothing. This is your family member who's in prison. The idea behind this passage is that you did that regardless if they were family or not. And the word that is brought out is stranger. When I was a stranger, you responded to me this way. Now, you'll notice that the ones that do not get the, the blessing in this particular concept of the judgment scene are the ones who didn't serve those strangers. The ones who didn't take care of those who were sick. The ones who didn't take care of those who were in need. So, first of all, I can look in the Old Testament and see an individual requirement of my response to those who are aliens and strangers. I am to treat them as a native and respond to them in their needs. In the New Testament... Even to those who are strangers who are not of me, I am to respond to their needs because that's the way that God would respond to people. That's the way that he has responded to you and to me. So when it comes then to the bigger picture, what about the nation? Can our nation have certain certain elements of protection that maybe are outside of what you and I can have? And I would offer this to you. When you think on this subject, you need to think on it from two angles. Number one, the individual responsibility. And number two, the government responsibility. Because throughout the text, those are not always the same. The government is able to respond to certain individuals in certain situations in ways that are appropriate for the government, but the individual can't take the place of the government. In the same way, the government can't take the place of the individual. There really are, and you really think about this in three concepts, God institutions, the church, the family, and the government. And you start looking at all three of those and the reason those three exist and kind of the areas of which they exist and the instruction to those areas. What you come to find out is God really expected the government to be the government, the family to be the family, and the church to be the church. And they all have a very variation in their function, but all of it functions well when they function according to God's will. In the same sense, when you start looking at this subject from an individual responsibility and a government responsibility, what you'll find out is the Old Testament and the New Testament say the exact same thing. Individually, I am to respond to those who are strangers, 
the way that God would respond to those people who are strangers. As a nation, in the Old Testament, they could build a wall to have security, to have safety, to have their reproach removed. And in the New Testament, what I want you to understand is this, that has not changed in the government's ability to govern as a sovereign nation. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, the Bible will read this way, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. You see, the idea is you're to submit to the human institution, regardless of if it's a king or another authority. And the whole concept is because they are there for a reason. Verse 14, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. That's what the government is there for. Verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So the idea is the way you as a Christian respond to the government actually has to do with the way other people view you as a follower of Jesus. Whether or not you are rebellious, whether or not you are rambunctious, all of your lifestyle and your submission to those in authority, what the Bible says here by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that reflects on what people think about you as a disciple and ultimately then about the one that you follow. Verse 16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. He'll get into this idea of the way that an individual is supposed to be submissive. And over and over again, what you're going to find is that as a Christian, we are supposed to live with a submissive spirit. It's not merely the concept that individuals might fall into thinking, well, no, the only one that submission runs into is when the Bible says wives be in submission to your own husbands as unto the Lord. But the idea behind that is this, we are to be in submission to one another, but then all of us are to be in submission to God Almighty. So the Christian, the Christian attitude is one of submission. But it's not only there because we submit to God, we submit to the government. And we let the government be the government. Now, that's another story for another time. I, I actually, within this series of lessons, have one on learn to discern the role of government. And at what point in time do followers of Jesus Christ quit following a government that is no longer operating under the way that God would have them to operate? That's a very serious discussion. But one that the Bible doesn't run away from either. When you look at this particular subject, though, in this text... The word evildoers comes out. It's a word in the Greek that means one who does evil to another. Usually when this, when this discussion is phrased on immigration, the concept is, well, they're just dreamers. They're individuals who are seeking a better life. Well, the problem that we run into is when you start getting into the idea of what does it mean to be an evildoer? Are individuals who come to this nation and they do so illegally, are they evildoers? What constitutes an evildoer? And of course, that's where sometimes even under the umbrella of Christianity, people will disagree. The discussion could be phrased, well, evildoers are individuals who are trying to cause harm. That would be their intent. So therefore, since they don't have bad intent would they really fall under the evildoer category? And the other side would say this, evildoers are those who break the law. All lawbreakers are evildoers. Did they come over here knowing that they weren't coming through the right channels? Yes. 
then they purposely broke the laws of a sovereign nation. Yes, then they're evildoers. That's the way the discussion oftentimes is phrased. The question is not what do you want to believe about it or what do I want to believe about it. The question is this. How does the Bible look at the concept of evildoers? I want you to consider one other passage this morning and then the lesson is yours. I'm not even sure when I'm supposed to quit. Just keep going. Forever. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. The Bible reads this way. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. I don't have time to read all of that, but I will interesting to say this. The idea of evil in that passage is of the same root word of the evil in 1 Peter chapter 2. That word evil here is this, not such as it ought to be. It's used also at times of a cowardly soldier who is retreating in battle. In other words, you would look at a cowardly soldier who retreats and you say, the soldier is not supposed to retreat. They are supposed to run forward. They are supposed to run to defend. The idea of evil would be the soldier who is retreating. In this context, that same root word is used of individuals who go against the ruling authorities. And so, evildoers do that which ought not to be And they go against the ministers of God, which is what the government is said to be here, diakonos, servant. And so the idea is then, can the government punish those who go against the governing authority? The answer is, yes. They have that right. So here you go. When you and I come to a conclusion then on this subject, Does the government today have a right to deport those who come in illegally? Yes. Biblically, yes. Does the government today have a right biblically to build a wall at our southern border? Yes, they do. But do I individually have a responsibility to those who are here legally and or illegally? And the answer is yes. If someone comes up to you, I call this a give a water, give a cup of water theology. If somebody comes up to you and they say this, I'm thirsty, I need a drink. As a child of God, your first response should not be, show me your green card. Your first response should be, here's a cup of water. If someone comes up to you and says, I'm hungry, I need food. Your first response should not be, show me your green card. Your first response should be, Here's some food. Because you have an individual responsibility and the government has a governing responsibility. One does not replace the other. I call it give a cup of water theology. And I would propose this to you. 
It is complete from the Old Testament to the New. Now, you may disagree with that, and I'd love to hear biblically where you would, where you would stand. But either way, that's where I've concluded on this particular issue, and I would love the opportunity to discuss that further with you. So, I am out of time. Let's end with a word of prayer, and then we're gonna conclude. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for blessing us with this opportunity to, to dive into your word, to study what we count in this culture a hot button topic. But Lord, we know for you, these topics aren't hot button. You've already concluded what you expect out of us, your people, and you've concluded the purpose of government. Lord, help us simply to line up behind your conclusions. Thank you for always being good. Help us, Lord, to become more like you every day because you have revealed yourself to us through your word and you've given us your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.